Hello and welcome to JudgeCast. This is episode number 118. My name is Jess Dunks, and with me as always is Brian Prilliman and CJ Schrader. Hello, I am Brian Prilliman. CJ? CJ? Well, it looks like he is, uh, he, he missed his intro, so... Uh, he failed to announce, failed to announce himself. himself at the intro, so there's no, uh, he's not going to be here with us today. Sorry, CJ, you have to go. And we can't put you on the podcast. Mm-hmm. You've been missed. Uh, but we but we need to find somebody else uh, uh, to help us out. Can we get Ricky on the phone? I know that uh, the last week Turner was saying that he was like, he's been on the most shows, so we should get Ricky on here to, to counteract that. Okay, okay. <laughs> this is... <laughs> Hi, Ricky. <laughs> this is awful. We're so yeah, helpless. So we, we have Ricky with us this time. How are you doing, Ricky? Are you there? Oops. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Fortunately. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you, Ricky? I just picked up the phone and answered your call. That's <laughs> what I did. <laughs> wink. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. So CJ is... is uh, is on his uh, 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 death's bed. Not really. He's just, he's got the sniffles. So when this gets posted, please post on his wall, get well messages and stuff like that and send him like virtual e-cards of flowers and cats many, and yeah. cats with flowers. All the Facebook stickers. As many as All you can come Facebook up with. Stickers, please. And if you're clues, uh, send them via Twitter because <laughs> we know how much you dislike Facebook. Okay, so what are, what are we talking about today, Jeff? Today, uh, in case you didn't get the joke, we made them a few minutes ago. Today is about mist triggers, uh, which is a topic that that uh, chif- it shifts around some. And if you haven't been uh, paying attention, it's it might have changed a lot if you've been out of the game for a while and you just came back. And we decided that we should do an episode dedicated to mist triggers as a whole. Um, and I'm surprised yeah. you guys didn't do an episode on this three years ago, which I just looked up as when the the last major major shift was. We probably I th- I think we did when the policy changed we did, but it's been so long and we've picked up a lot of new listeners, so we figured we would cover it again. Um, I know we did one on lapsing triggers, and I think we did one when it changed away from lapsing triggers. Which was a long time ago, so if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. That's never coming back. Is, uh, is it really 2011 was when they were mandatory? Yeah. yeah. Has it been that long? Yeah, it's been that wow. long. Wow. There are... Wow. So, so prior to 2011, uh, triggered abilities were mandatory. Both players were responsible for triggered abilities. Um, if you missed a triggered ability, you got a warning. It didn't matter what kind it was. If you let your opponent miss triggered ability, you got a warning. No matter what it, kind it was of- just like it was just like everything else in the sense of both players were responsible, and so if you if you missed your trigger, your opponent had to say, "Hey, you missed your trigger," even if that trigger was going to kill him. Right. Yeah. Th- so the exception was there were there are still, but at the time it, the distinction was important that there were triggers that were optional. They say may, like at the beginning of your upkeep, you may do something, right. and if your opponent didn't do that, then the policy assumed that they chose not to do it, and so it was just fine 
is a mistrigger, like you just kind of ignore it. But there have, you know, in the history of magic, there's been a lot of templating that doesn't use the word may. And, and the real big one here was in 2011, New Phyrexia came out and the shrines, uh, most famously Shrine of Burning Rage, was was a card that really led to a reevaluation of whether we wanted triggers to work this way. Because the Shrine of Burning Rage, for example, says, at the beginning of your upkeep, or whenever you cast a red spell, put a charge counter on Shrine of Burning Rage. And then you can sacrifice a deal, to deal damage equal to the charge counters. This is not an optional trigger. So at the time, if you, you know, your opponent passes the turn and you draw a card, your opponent was perfectly well within their rights to call for a judge and say, he missed his trigger. He didn't put a counter on the Shrine of Burning Rage. Or if you cast a red spell and you didn't put a counter on it, oh, it's a missed trigger. Uh, it's a mandatory only, trigger. And you got warnings. Yeah, not only were you well within your rights, but at the time, you had to call your opponent out on it. Like, you had to call a judge and right, say, right. judge, my opponent missed this trigger. Right. And, that, and if that was the trigger that was going to kill you or do something really bad to you, like the Shrines... It was like a. It created this interesting, and I say interesting, but really it was awful situation where if you if you would lose if you pointed it out, and if you didn't point it out, you were risking a disqualification. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, you're so, nine so life. This thing has eight counters on it, and they start their turn and don't put a counter on it. You have to be like, sigh, put a counter on that. Now I'm dead. Yep. Um, and, so, and, and so, conversely, that also created a really bad feel bad. This was an easy thing to forget. It was a thing that could only ever help you as the player controlling a Shrine of Burning Rage. Uh, so if I started my turn and drew a card for the turn, I'd get a warning. If I did that twice more, I'd get a game loss because we'd upgrade it. And yeah, yeah. That's, so that, that was one of the big things that happened. There was a, gosh, there was a Grand Prix in Kansas City. I, I'm pretty sure it was Phyrexia Block Limited, and there were a lot of Shrines seeing play, right? Right. And... <laughs> People would miss multiples of these triggers, and I believe Jason Lems was the head judge of this tournament, and he kind of made a fiat ruling that I believe he consulted with the other high-level judges on, saying that they were not going to upgrade uh, multiple infractions of missed triggers for, for shrines to game losses, because it was so easy to miss, and it just kept happening over and over. And I'm sure that the, the report he submitted to Watsi kind of shaped the way the policy changed after that. I also, I also have a, a suspicion that because uh, if you look at the the sets that came out after with uh, with cons and with Theros block and some with uh, 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 Return to Ravnica, there was a lot of abilities with triggers. Like mm -hmm. like especially with Theros, it just seems so much more than normal. So. I think that probably they might have even had a little bit of look ahead and they were like, oh, well, you know, scars, we have a lot of, uh, you know, artifact triggers and we're going to be doing this thing with a lot of uh, enchantment type triggers. It comes into play triggers and ability triggers and stuff like that. We need to do something uh, looking ahead. You know, no evidence of that other than I just, I would like to think that they. But this was also a time, uh, continuing with the history here, this was also a time when we, when R&D was moving away from triggered abilities that set, that had the word May. If you look prior to that, there were a ton of triggered abilities that had the word May, and it confused new players because you'd have abilities that said, when something happens, you may gain one life, for example. And players would go, why would I ever choose not to do that? And it confused them. It was just a little bit more complexity. So they took some of that complexity out, 
by by taking maze off of these these things that are generally beneficial, uh, and it created this problem for the existing policy. Yeah, that's fair. Um, one of the one of the ones was Soul Warden is the old card from way way back in the day. It says whenever another creature enters the battlefield, you gain one life. That's mandatory. They mm-hmm. made a functional reprint, Soul's Attendant, I think in Rise of the Eldrazi, that was the same thing, but whenever another creature enters the battlefield, you may gain one life. Because they, at the time, they were trying to move away from mandatory to give people the ability, I guess, to miss the trigger. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it didn't work out because it confused people and, and there was a lot of... Yeah, why would, I, why would I not that. want to? Why would I not want to gain the life? I don't understand. Yeah. I, I also remember there was an incident... Maybe it was a, a U.S. Nationals, where a player was playing against a Soul Sisters deck, which has Soul Warden, Soul's Attendant, and a Johnny's Pride Mate, which is uh, put counters on it uh, when you gain life. So let's see. The, so the Pride Mate is one of the new templates. So it said you may put a plus one, plus one counter on it. And the deck was playing both Soul's Attendant and Soul Warden. So the weird thing that would happen is if... Your opponent played a creature and they had a soul warden, which is mandatory. The, you had to tell your opponent, hey, gain a life. And then obviously that would clue them in and remind them that they should probably put a counter on their Johnny's pride mate as well. If they had a soul's attendant and they played a creature and didn't gain a life, you could ignore it because it's a may. So this put a player in a very awkward position where he asked the judge away from the table, do I have to remind my opponent of this, of the soul warden, which is mandatory? And the judge was like, yes. He said, is there any way I can remind him to gain a life and have him miss the Pride Mate trigger? And really, at the time, <laughs> there wasn't, unfortunately. And so, yeah, that was another one of those feel-bad, like, you know, playing for your opponent type moments that, that may have played into the policy change, which I don't know if you guys <laughs> remember this, but the, the first attempt at changing the miss trigger policy was kind of a nightmare. Oh, yeah. Oh, I do remember uh, this. It, it didn't even last long enough to actually go into official policy. It it was a week, yeah. right? They they pulled it out after a week. It had uh, this is this is going back into the. I don't even know if there's copies of the policy around, but it had this big list of effects that the judges had to memorize, and it was basically there were all these like these things don't say they're optional, but they're actually optional, and like it was it was really bad. It was, yeah, if you forget these, it's okay. If you don't forget these, then it's or it's if you forget these, it's okay. But you can't forget these, and it was two really long lists, and it was asking the judges to memorize it, but then the players were trying to memorize it too, and it was just creating all sorts of problems. So well, sure. So. I mean, the players would want to memorize it so they they know what they're required to do when they have to tell their opponent about a trigger and when they can ignore it. Right, as a competitive yeah. player it was a nightmare. Yeah. So this was this was a big a big fundamental shift and it's it's that came out with with this new policy uh I I believe uh, like I said it didn't last a week but it was it was opponents do not have to point out your or I don't have to point out your miss your miss triggers. I don't have to point out your triggers anymore. Um, and that was a huge shift because up until this point, if you didn't say anything, uh, you were cheating. And now no longer, no longer you're cheating. However, that caused its own problems because not everybody knows exactly what a trigger is. Okay. So. 
do we want to get into what a what is a trigger and like how you can tell a trigger oh. from something else? Yeah, uh, well, so there are three there are three primary words to look for when you want to identify if something's a trigger or not, and they all show up at the very beginning of a of the phrase. And those three words are when, whenever, and at. And the, and the at you know is at some point in a turn, at the beginning of upkeep, at the beginning of your end step, etc. And then the difference between when and whenever is is mostly a uh, a grammatical one based on whether the trigger can be ex- expected to trigger multiple times or not. Right. Like whenever another creature enters the battlefield, do this, and when I enter the battlefield, right, do right. this. Uh, as an example. Now, things that look like triggers that aren't. Uh, fetch lands. The or, I'm sorry, not fetch lands. Shock lands. Uh, where it says they enter the battlefield tapped unless you pay two. That's not a trigger. Uh, things that say as this enters the battlefield uh, or this enters the battlefield tapped, those are not uh, uh, those aren't triggers. Those are replacement effects. And they normally use the word uh, as instead of at. Mm-hmm. As or, or if. They, if or instead. Things, things like that. And so that caused a little bit of confusion at the beginning because people weren't really sure like what's a what's a trigger and, and what's not. But the three words to look for when, whenever, and at. Okay, so yeah, those are those are triggered abilities. And and the reason we have this whole policy on missed triggers is because they triggered abilities are invisible in terms of when you are playing a physical game of magic. You know, something enters the battlefield you can see that you know the card is physically there, uh, but this other thing says when this enters the battlefield, do X, and there is no spell card. There's no ability card that you physically put on the stack and say this is the ability. You know, if you play Magic Online, you can see them, but in in real Magic, there's nothing there. So often, th- these are the most easiest things to miss to forget about as a player. And so, not only we wanted to have a policy to be able to cover that. Not only are they invisible, but they happen automatically. So it's it's there. It's it's not even uh, the game or the game the way the rules are set up. The game just automatically puts it there. So that's where we get into the to the memory issue because there's no visible representation of it. It automatically goes there. There's no decision point really at that point when the when the when it tries to when it tries to go on the stack. Right, and and so some there would be game situations. Where players would be confused about whether a trigger had happened or not, you know, one player would assume that he had he had remembered because in his head he's like this triggers, but maybe he didn't say that it triggered or he didn't make the proper indication of what it did. So the opponent is under the impression that it was missed or just doesn't even know that it was supposed to happen because he's not paying attention to that. And then they reach a point later in the game where they say, "Okay, well this is supposed to happen because this trigger happened earlier," and they're like. No, no, it didn't. What do you mean? I don't. You didn't say anything. So, so that's that's really where the the confusion can happen is later on, you know, players disagreeing about whether a trigger happened or not. So, so talking about that, um, how do we know when a trigger's been missed? Well, that's like, that's what the policy covers now, right? Right. Yep. That's that's what I'm I'm wanting to get into here is is. Um, you know, we've discussed what a triggered ability is and some reasons why it's important to remember them so you get your stuff. But um, 
you know, what's so, what does it mean to miss a trigger? Do we even want to talk about lapsing triggers, or is um, that just a <laughs> I, like I think artifact of history? We it all is want an artifact of history. There was a time where there was a really complicated set of rules called lapsing triggers that I don't want to go into too much detail about because it will confuse people. But it was a very complex set of mistrigger rules that only applied at competitive REL. So we had different rules at regular REL. It was just all really bad. That's right. Yeah, there was a there was a brief point where something that you could get a, that, that was totally legal at competitive REL would get you disqualified at regular REL. And I actually saw it happen. And that's awful. Um, but that is no longer the case. That has been fixed. And that is those are the dark ages of the past. You know, um, I've completely purged how lapsing triggers worked from my from my mind. Like I'd probably have to go back and listen to some of our old podcast to even to even remember. Yeah, I, I actually looked up um, the, the the policy on this, and it's just mind bendingly difficult to get your head around. And mm-hmm. and I I wouldn't be surprised if there were in fact judges who didn't commit some of this to memory or even decided to not judge or quit judging because this was too complicated well there was there was actually a lot of people when the when the policy change where it's like hey missing your triggers isn't isn't or not pointing out your opponent's missed triggers isn't cheating there was like r- riots in the forums where people are like we're sanctioning cheating Rawr. yeah and in, in fact there was um there's a very unfortunate incident at pro tour return to ravnica in seattle around this time um when Jackie Lee was disqualified, partially due to a misunderstanding of the trigger policy and what her what her obligation was, right? So right, yeah. that was well, that was a, that was that mixed with the life the life total discrepancy policy at the yes, time. Yes, yes, like it was the intersection of two fairly new policies, and I think even the head judge who disqualified her at the time said, "I don't believe that this was malicious, but you know she did break the rules." Like she, like as a person, she's not the kind of person that would intentionally cheat, you know, their opponent out. But she had an understanding of the rules that was different than what the rules were, and possibly based on some old understanding. And she took some actions that were ultimately illegal because of that. Right. So, okay. So, how do you? So, instead of talking about how you miss a trigger, let's talk about how you acknowledge your trigger because i think for the for the best part or for the most part it's if you acknowledge your trigger then you didn't miss it okay all right that's that sounds simple so there's there's things you have to do to to prove that you've remembered your trigger and if you do those things great you remembered them and if you don't do those things then you forgot yeah as a player i think one of the most important distinctions is this isn't about how can you trick your opponent into forgetting a trigger this the policy our policy as judges is about okay we've reached a point where there there may be some confusion between the players about whether a trigger happened or not and we have a list of of procedures that we follow to determine based on the evidence whether the trigger was missed so right. as a player the best thing for you to do is and the policy spells this out is assume that the trigger happened unless you know some of this criteria is met and that, you know, I think especially with prowess, that's a very important one. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, uh, the creature gets plus one, plus one. Just assume that it happened. And, you know, make your blocks and things accordingly. And if, you know, your their 2-2 prowess attacks into your 2-2, two, two, 
assume that their creature is a 3-3 and don't make that block. Like, don't block it and then try to, like, wordplay your opponent into missing prowess. Yeah, there's there's a section of rule rules in the IPG here that's really important. Um, it, it's It's not that they have to... Your opponent does not have to specifically state that the trigger's on the stack. They don't have to specifically um, say the word trigger or anything like that. They have to demonstrate awareness that the trigger exists. Um, and, and, and how they do that depends on how it would impact the game, uh, or rather the point at which they have to do that by... Uh, so, depends on how it impacts the game. So all, the, all triggers that we've got are broken down into four, four categories. Um, the first one uh, is if the triggered ability uh, requires its controller to choose targets uh, uh, or modes or any other choices that can only be made when you put the put it on the stack. So, for example, um, uh, on blanket that. The, uh, the guy that when he comes into play, you can either put a plus one, plus one counter on him or get a one, one white uh, flying Sand, spirit. Sandstep outcast. Yeah, sandstep outcast. Okay, so that's the example. When he enters the battlefield, you have to make one of these two choices. Okay, that is a choice. That is a, You have to choose between modes. You have to make that choice at the time you put that on the stack. Uh, something else where it's like, at the beginning of your upkeep, one damage to target creature. You have to you have to target the creature at that point in time to demonstrate awareness. So if it's if it's modes, targets, or or anything else that has to be done when it gets put on the stack, that's that you have to do that uh, before you next pass priority. And the and the one exception here listed is for for choosing targets is other than target opponent because. Yeah. The, the IPG is designed to govern competitive REL tournaments. Thus far in competitive REL, we don't have multiplayer tournaments. So the assumption is if some, some effect calls for a target opponent, the, the ability is assumed to be on the stack targeting your opponent. Yes. And, it got so much better when we removed two at a giant from, from competitive anything. Yeah. It's awful. And that's, okay, so that's that's an important distinction too, um, because it doesn't apply to any other situation where there's only one legal target, and right. and you can't you yeah. can't use that to say, well, if there's only one target creature, then clearly I was meant to target this one. Um, yeah, unfortunately, and, that, and that's, that's just the way it works. I think that's because it opened up too many weird corner cases, and so it was easier just to uh, to just say no to that you know target opponent it's obvious for competitive magic that it's always going to be the other guy or the other player yeah so all right so what's the what's the next one the next category is um triggered abilities that cause a change in the visible game state or require a choice upon resolution um this could be life totals this could be destroying a creature uh, this could be requiring your opponent to choose something, um, any of the above, and several other things. the The way you acknowledge this is by taking the appropriate physical action, uh, or, or making it clear what action is taken uh, before you take any game actions that can only be taken after the ability resolves. So, like, basically, if you haven't, you know, passed priority through it yet, and you go, "Oh, there's this thing. I've I've chosen to do this," then you're fine. 
Um, if you if you don't acknowledge the trigger by say, stating what choice is made or or making the uh, appropriate change to the game state, and then you go do other things uh, like cast uh, a sorcery spell or or something along those lines, then then you've not acknowledged your trigger. And so so some examples are uh, Geist of Saint Traft. Okay, when he attacks, you get a you get an angel. Okay, a creature. Uh, a token entering the battlefield is a visible change. Yeah. So you need to do that. Now, to be clear about that, you know, this is one where we've had issues with players. If I turn my Geist to St. Traft sideways and say, I'll attack you for six, I've acknowledged my trigger. Yes. Um, the fact that yeah. I haven't physically put a token out there yet, um, you know, then we could get into GRV land if there's an issue, which I don't think there will be. But, like, the fact that I've acknowledged I'm attacking for six means I've acknowledged my trigger. Right. But if you attack, if you turn your guys sideways, and your opponent says, uh, uh, your opponent, your opponent like moves moves a guy forward to block, uh, block the guys, and you go, okay, take four. Yeah. No. Right. Exactly. Okay, because because the token coming in is a is a is a visible thing. Uh, bolster. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Well, I was gonna say about guys to Saint Traft. Eh- and most recently, you know, there was a clarification to this part of the policy saying that, you know, taking the appropriate physical action is acknowledgement of the trigger. It, it rest- Every time something like this slightly changes, it, it re-triggers, I guess, um, like this jerk impulse in players. So they say like, oh, well, if he attacks with Geist and, you know, doesn't physically put a token on the battlefield, then it's not attacking. Well, no, you can say, I'm attacking, you know, as Jess said, I'm attacking for six. Or attack with Geist, get an angel. And if the combat step is clear and short enough that you don't really need to have a physical representation of the token, that's fine. Like, we're fine with players taking shortcuts as long as both players are clear on what's happening. In fact, so, we encourage you to take clear shortcuts. Yeah. We, we don't want this whole, like, oh, I'll attack with my Geist and, like, search my box for an angel token and, you know, waste this time. As long as it's clear. So if, you know, if as the defending player, you have some blockers available and you want to kind of physically lay it out, you can say, hey, can you just get a token so I can see what's going on and make my blocks? That's fine. But if, if you don't have any blockers and you're just trying to be a jerk, please, please accept that. So before that, Brian, you were you were moving on to some other actions, I believe. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, like bolster, for example. So bolster is uh, something that may seem like it was the first case. It has you know uh, choices, but those choices are made on resolution, not uh, when they're when it's put on the stack. So uh, uh, a bolster trigger, putting the choosing your creature, putting the counter on it. Those are actions that you do upon resolution that you need to do at the appropriate time and if you don't or you don't acknowledge them in some form or fashion then when you move on then it's gone now uh there is a caveat that just because i do something after the trigger uh has been put on the stack doesn't necessarily mean that i've missed the trigger the trigger could still be on the stack like you mean, like if you cast an instant or activate an ability? Yeah. yeah. So like, so I cast, I, I, I play a creature, 
Uh, I play a creature that, when it enters the battlefield, bolster one. And so I play the creature, it resolves, and then I play a burn spell, an instant burn spell. Okay, that doesn't mean that uh, I've gone past that point because the trigger could very well still be on the stack. Okay, and how do you know if it still is? Uh, ask. Which, if you do, it is. <laughs> right, you should always assume your opponent remembers that triggers until they give you a reason to believe otherwise. You shouldn't, you shouldn't ever try to play gotcha with them. Um, but it's such a fun game. No. No, it's not. Not fun at all. Yeah, not so much. Um, so I think we've, we've, we've covered that. Are there any other examples we'd like to talk about in that section of Miss Triggers? I think I, this is probably the best place for the scenario that I recently wrote about, which is Whisperwood Elemental. Because not only is it a, a trigger that changes the visual game state, but it's it un, interacts unusually with our um, shortcut policies. Oh, because of the end of turn issue? Yeah. So this yes. actually, this this question came up at the Pro Tour, Pro Tour Dragons of Tarkir, um, in a match with Sam Black, and he was curious about it. And I've seen it happen several times before at some Star City Opens. So Whisperwood Elemental says, at the beginning of your end step, manifest the top card of your library. And, and the normal way like a player might do this is they might say, end my turn, get a manifest, right? That's, that's one possibility. Or they might say, ready to go to my end step and see if their opponent does something because, you know, the opponent is incentivized then to like heroes downfall it in the second main phase so that they don't get a manifest. So you give them that opportunity to do that. Where it can cause confusion is if you have a whisper word elemental in play and you just say go or done. What does that mean? What's happened? Where, where are we? Is the trigger on the stack? So in that particular in that particular case, if all you if you take the shortcut and the mistrigger rules and you combine them together, where we are is the opponent has priority during the beginning of end step um, with the Whisperwood Elemental trigger on the stack. Right. So when you say go, you are saying go ahead. You can start your turn, but by by the rules, you are passing priority until your opponent has priority in the end step in your end step, because that's kind of their last chance to do something in, in your turn. And that's usually when people do, do something. So yeah. if, if I say go, this Whisper Word Elemental trigger is still on the stack. I still have an opportunity to remember it, or if I do remember it, to announce it. And, you know, if, you, if my opponent does stuff in the, in the end step, like crack a fetch land or cast an instant draw spell, after that resolves, I can still say, okay, now I'll get my manifest. If they start, if they start their turn, then that, that's where things get a little more complicated, and I have to stop them whoa, whoa, from whoa, starting whoa. their turn. Manifest. Yeah. So it's very possible that I forgot, if I say go, I've forgotten the trigger, but I have until they begin their turn to stop them. So if they reach for their permanence to untap them, or if they don't have permanence, you know, if they don't have tap permanence, they reach for their library, I have to the first thing I need to do is go, whoa, hold on. In my, in my end step, I get a manifest. And if I let them, you know, and let them is kind of where this gets ambiguous, but I, I feel like, you know, if the first thing they do is untap their lands and I go, whoa, hang on, that's fine. If they untap their lands, draw a card and play a land, then, then we're at the point where, where you've missed that. You've given and them, you know, too much time to do other things. 
And, and this isn't really that new of a thing. There were cards that did this before in both standard and modern and extended. Uh, uh, Sig River Cutthroat comes to mind uh, as an example of a card that had this problem. That wasn't um, that well. It's that pretty was much also the same pre- thing. That was also pre Miss Trigger Change, I think. Yeah. Uh, it was pre Miss Trigger Change, but not pre. Uh, uh, yeah. Not pre. Like, the, the shortcut still existed. So there was a question. So, so here's. So there's, there's a part later on in policy about uh, you, your opponent not being able to rush you through, uh, through your trigger. Right. Um, now, in this, in this particular case, it's it's dealing with when you have a trigger that triggers during the active player's turn. So you're the non-active player and it triggers during their turn. They can't just, you know, you've got a trigger on your upkeep and they just rush through untapped draw to try and get you to, to miss your trigger. There's none of that. But in this particular case, at the end of turn, you are the active player and you are telling them go. You are the one who is controlling the pace of the turn. And you are the one who's controlling really when they start their turn. Yeah. So it's it's less of a you know the the whole it's like oh well they rushed through I didn't get an opportunity to it's it's I'm gonna be less forgiving about that uh, because you told them to go. Yeah. If if you simply say go, you are putting your trigger's life in your opponent's hands now. So it it's really in in your best interest to do one of the earlier things I said, which is like go manifest or. Ready to go to my end step. That kind of thing. All right. So uh, that is the visible change. So we got two more, two more categories. Uh, yeah. So the next category is a, a triggered ability that changes the rules of the game. Um, and so an example of this, the one that was a real big controversial topic uh, back before this policy came out, was uh, Pyre Heart Wolf. Um, Pyreheart Wolf had an ability, a triggered ability that said that, that it couldn't be blocked by uh, by less than I think it was less than two creatures. Yep, except two or it can't be blocked except by two or more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it can't be single blocked. Right, and uh, so there was a a weird question where it would attack, and then you, you wouldn't have any blockers, so your opponent, the guy attacking, didn't say anything, and then you were like, I'm gonna flash in this blocker and block because you didn't say anything about your trigger. Um, and we didn't want that to be a situation that occurred. Uh, that's a bad situation. So a trigger like this is not considered missed if you prevent your opponent from taking the action that that this rule change from the triggered ability prevents. Um, so trying or, to block with one creature. Yes. Yeah. So they try to block with one creature, and you go, no, 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 no. It can only be blocked by two creatures. Is Schrodinger's trigger. Right. You don't know whether it exists or not until you try to take that action. It exists. I know. It it always exists. And again, there's nothing preventing uh, the defending player from trying trying the trigger check. You know, flashing in a creature and trying to block. But it's, it's, it's on the attacking player to then say, you can't block because of my trigger. And acknowledging it at that point. Like, that's, that's one thing I want to be very clear on is, if your opponent doesn't say, you know, if they have the, the one attacking creature and you have no blockers and they just attack, then you can still flash in that creature and try to do that and see if they remember their trigger. And I think that that is one of kind of the, the best things about the trigger policy is 
it allows you to try plays, you know, that that may or may not be possible based on what your opponent allows. Okay, so here's here's a a question for you guys. Um, let's say so. Obviously, this isn't going to be a standard legal card, but I attack with uh, uh, an exalted an exalted creature. Um, and I, I think I know what your answer is going to be. I attack with my, I have a 2-2 exalted creature. I attack with it. Okay. Uh, and some other things. My opponent blocks. So I've clearly declared blockers. So we're, we, we can't, we're not going to play that, uh, oh, I'm still, it's still on the trigger, still on the stack, declare attacker stuff. Okay. So I attack with my 2-2 creature. Oh, sorry. Wrong, bad example because of exalted. Um. I attack with my exalted creature by itself. It's 2-2. I declare, or my opponent declares, no blocks. Okay, after no blocks, he casts SWAT, which is destroy target creature with power 2 or less. Okay, I say, well, it's a 3-3 now. Is that, uh, and you get a judge call because they can't figure out what's going on. Well, so in that situation, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, like so. So basically, and this was kind of convoluted, created on the fly. Yeah. But it's creating a situation where I'm casting a, or my opponent is casting a spell that uh, would only be legal if the trigger didn't happen. Right. Okay. So what's the question? It, whether okay. So the question is, he, he, they they're arguing as to whether or not uh, SWAT will will kill the creature or it's legal or not. The question is, would you give that guy a GRV for attempting that uh no i wouldn't i wouldn't either because he he doesn't know he, he i mean he we tell him assume that it happened but in reality you don't know right yeah yeah he's he's making he's making the trigger check now yeah. why he waited until know, after was, blockers is the it con- was a quickly <laughs> it was a quickly constructed scenario but if the opponent if, if i go yep got me and i pick my guy up and put him in the graveyard uh, yeah, well, sure. Two did is a two-two. It died. But but again, like the the best way to interact with your opponent's triggers is to assume they happen or are going to happen. So if you have this scenario, you should, you know, it's if it's important for you to make him commit to attackers, say, okay, your creature is attacking in response to the exalted trigger. I'll swat it. Like sometimes you may have to acknowledge your opponent's trigger for them just to clarify what you're doing and when you're doing it. Right. Yeah, and you'll get, you'll get players that come up and ask, um, so, hey, in that situation, what do I have to do to get them to miss their trigger? And as we've already discussed, that's that's not the game we're playing here. Um, yeah. <laughs> what you have to do is get them to miss their trigger. Like, do something right. that w- yeah. is not possible without the trigger having yeah. been missed. Cast a spell and see if the creature dies. Like, that's what you have to do. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the, your, adva- your advantage as the opponent is not in being able to play some some game to get your opponent to miss their trigger. Right. That's not your advantage. Your advantage is you get to keep your mouth shut when they do miss it. So if they're, if they're missing their during your upkeep gain of life, well, you just, you know, you just uh, uh, decreased your clock on them. Or increased your clock, whichever way it goes. Yeah. And, and this policy has been fantastic for judges as well, because we don't have to intervene. And maybe we'll we'll get to this later in more in in depth. But we don't have to intervene if if we see potential mistriggers. 
And I remember very shortly after the, the, the lapsing triggers went away and we got kind of our current form, I was watching a match, player cast Terminus, and a guy had um, Thrag Tusk and did not put a 3-3 beast token on the battlefield. And previously, that's something that I would have to intervene in and say, you're getting a warning, you know, put the, put the beast on the battlefield. I just watched, you know, made, made sure everything was okay, that no one was going to ask a question, and then walked away. <laughs> it was fantastic. Hmm. Okay, so uh, let's, let's talk the, the last possible, the last, uh, last category is a triggered ability that affects the game state in a non-visible way, uh, and the and and that's, so it affects the game state in a non-visible way. The controller must take the physical action or make it clear that the action, what the what the action is, the first time that change has an effect on the visible game state. I think we so this is. I think we've kind of acknowledged that already with the the exalted situation. Um, yeah. In that, that's probably the best example of this kind of effect. Yeah, exalted prowess. prowess. Uh, the heroic things like Kragma Butcher that get a power toughness bonus. And, and this is, this is pro- probably the part of the policy that still confuses players the most. Uh, I think it's, especially in limited, uh, with prowess, this is one of the most frequent questions we get. Or, uh, you know, judge calls about whether the creature is pumped or not. And so as, uh, as Brian pointed out, you don't have to say anything about the trigger when it happens. You just have to acknowledge it or point out the effect that it has when it becomes relevant. So a creature with prowess, you know, any, any of these power toughness bonuses, that's usually when the creature would deal damage. Sometimes you have cases where your, your opponent's casting a removal spell, uh, you know, like a, a lightning strike, three damage on a 3-3 three, three with prowess. Then you can say, well, prowess triggered. It's a 4-4. Four, four. Your lightning strike doesn't kill it. Right, exactly that. Um, this is gonna. This comes up a lot, and and I, it, I would say at least once at every competitive event, I have this question, like, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. Oh, you, definitely you, not. You, definitely yeah. not. And it, like again, if, especially if it's limited, I, I was the Super Sunday Series head judge um, at GP Denver in January, and it was limited only, and it was you know the middle of middle of cons so there was a lot of prowess and i think that ruling was appealed twice you know to me the floor judge made the ruling correctly and it was appealed twice to me and i would assume that there were many other instances where the ruling was made but not appealed right all right so there's there's two other triggers that always resolve um and those those triggers are triggered abilities that do nothing but create uh, a, a delayed trigger ability. Um, so uh, uh, an example of this would be something that um, at the you know when uh, uh, something enters the battlefield, uh, put a token into play, and then at the end of uh, at the end of turn sacrifice it. Okay, so that that trigger that that creating of that delayed trigger that happens automatically. You don't have to point that out or anything like that. Okay, its effect. Okay, when that delayed trigger goes off, then that gets handled in one of the other four situations that we talked about above. Uh, the next one is triggered abilities that do nothing except create one or more copies of a spell. So those triggers also always happen. They always go on the stack, but you still 
have to show awareness of the resulting object, even if they aren't triggers. So uh, Storm is an example. Okay, It's got a trigger, puts a lot of copies of the spells on the stack. Uh, if you then go on your merry way uh, and forget to demonstrate awareness of those resolving copies of the spell, then you've you've missed your trigger. Right. Even though the even even though the things that didn't happen weren't triggers, they were the result of triggers. Right. So, frequent exactly. question on Storm: I, I cast nine spells and cast tendrils of agony. Judge, how can I know if my opponent has missed the storm trigger or not? Well, if they don't say you're dead, then that's when they missed it. There's no, they don't have to say storm. They don't have to say trigger. You know, again, we assume that it resolves. And if he's like tendrils of agony, you for twenty, you're dead. Then that's acknowledgement enough. Yeah, exactly. Storm is a great example of this. Okay, so let's let's talk about. Um... Oh, and then one one final one final thing before we start getting into how do we how do we deal with a a, a trigger once it's missed uh, and we get called over um, is if a triggered ability has no impact on the game, it's not an infraction to fail to demonstrate awareness of it. So if you have a trigger that says at the beginning of your upkeep, sacrifice a creature, and you have no creatures, big deal. Right, that's kind of just the way people play. You know, yes, it triggered. No, you're not demonstrating awareness of it. You might. You, who cares? <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who cares? That's a good point. And, and that is again kind of another good functionality of the new trigger policy because I think the the old old policy pre twenty twenty eleven policy. You you might have had to acknowledge that the trigger happens and does nothing. I don't I don't quite recall. It's it's it starts getting into where it starts getting into the weirdness is when we start talking about intentionally missing your trigger. So we've talked a lot about uh, missing your triggers. It still needs to we still need to point out that you're not allowed to intentionally miss your trigger. So if you are aware of your trigger and you're not pointing it out, that's potentially a problem. What we wanted to do here is we specifically want to call out, yeah, this is a trigger. We don't we don't care. If you intentionally miss your do-nothing trigger, nobody cares. Right. So, like, a creature with flying has a triggered ability that gives it flying, for example. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, like, what was whatever. that? Cat Chasm Drake or something? Yeah. There, I don't it, remember it has what flying it is. and when it attacks, like, an, a, a creature gets, creature? I think it's an, a, an attacking creature gets flying or something like that. And if it was the only one that was attacking, then it had to give itself yeah. flying. Whenever Chasm Drake's attack, target creature you control gains flying until end of turn. So if it's your only creature, it's attacking. Yeah, yeah. It targets itself. Like I didn't acknowledge the trigger. Who cares? <laughs> I'm, I'm che- cheating. No. Okay. So we've de- we've determined that a trigger was missed. Right. Uh, oh boy. Yeah. So normally what's going to happen is we're going to get, uh, let's, let's say that we got a judge call uh, over and we come over, do to do, we walk over and the two and... <laughs> wait, wait, is that the sound that you make, Brian, when you answer a judge call, do to do? In my, he does. In my I head, confirm. 
I even do the little the little arm thing. Actually, normally I'm singing uh, "They Might Be Giants" uh, song "Minimum Wage" in my head when I go out to take a take a judge call. Okay, then. It's got the it's got the whip crack. But anyway, um, so you get you get a call over, and we're gonna try and figure out. Do to do. I even did the little arm little arm motions. Um, so, and they explained to us what, uh, what happened, what the trigger is that was missed. And we look at it and we determine, we determine the type of trigger and we make a determination, uh, that it was missed. What do we do with it? What's the, the fix? Uh, and, and that depends on, so we had four trigger points, really <laughs> trigger points. We had four, uh, uh, scenarios to determine whether or not a trigger has been missed. Uh, also the fix depends on what type of trigger it is. Um, right. And so this is the part that is mostly for judges, right? Like to, so, to figure out how to fix the situation. Yeah. So, uh, a- uh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, as a player, your only responsibility, well, your primary thing is you don't have to acknowledge your opponent's trigger or you don't have to point it out or if they miss it, they miss it. So what usually happens is the player who missed it is going to call the judge and be like, hey, I I missed this trigger. Or or they will try to say that the trigger happened and the opponent will be like, no, you missed it, judge. And then we get involved. Yeah. So I I actually want to talk about the the whole generally detrimental part I guess I guess now is probably the best the best thing. So, so if you're watching a match um, and you see a player miss a trigger, you're not going to intervene. You're not going to step in uh, unless two situations: uh, uh, the trigger meets two cri- two pieces of criteria, and one of them is you feel that the trigger is generally detrimental. Um, or if it's a symmetrical effect, the like say howling mine, the one of the halves of it is you know very good for you, and the other half is very bad for you. You know that that kind of thing that you would step in on. The other thing is if we think that you're cheating, those are the two times that we're going to step in. Um, so uh, what we define, uh, how we define a detrimental trigger, or we we actually say if the trigger is generally detrimental. Uh, this means there's there's some rules of thumb to determine whether or not a trigger is generally detrimental. Uh, sometimes they can contradict each other. Uh, the important part is to kind of look at it, uh, look at it as a whole, and make a common sense determination, as opposed to try and find these little nit nit noy corner cases. But the two rules the the two rules of thumb are uh, if the card would be better. Without the trigger, it's uh, it's generally a detrimental trigger. Okay, so the classic example of this is people ask, and it's like, well, uh, Bob, you know, is that is that trigger is that trigger detrimental or not? You go, okay, well, let's take the trigger off the card. Is is Bob better as a result of that? And by Bob, you do mean Dark oh, Dark Confidant. I want to <laughs> yeah, make sure sorry, people dark know Conf- that it's because it's been printed now without. His, his likeness, even if yes. you didn't know what his likeness was. So Dark Confidant, the trigger says, at the beginning of your upkeep, reveal the top card of your library and put that card into your hand. You lose life equal to its converted mana cost. And, and they have kind of repeated this ability in black cards over the years. It's not generally detrimental. 
even though you lose life, you want to lose life to get these cards. That's why you're playing this. If you took this triggered ability away, you would have a 2-1 creature for 2 mana, which is Goblin Piker, and no one is playing that in Constructed. Right, if you yeah. if you look at a triggered ability and you say, if I remove this from the card, would I still play it in Constructed? And the answer is, or whatever no, that's awful. Or whatever format, yeah. And then you go, no, that's awful. Would I be more or less likely to play this card if it didn't have the triggered ability? And if the answer is more likely, then it's probably not detrimental. And it, uh, I'm sorry, if the answer is more likely it probably is detrimental. And if the answer is, no, I would never play that card without that yeah. ability. Then and the whole thing about generally detrimental is you have to look at it in the vacuum of like all Magic the Gathering game situations. Right. If you think someone is intentionally missing a trigger, then that, that can be part of a cheating investigation. If someone is at one life and they control a Dark Confidant and they draw a card and they don't mention Dark Confidant and they start their turn, then you can stop the game and investigate and say, hey, you know, probably pull them aside say, hey, why didn't you, you know, do the Dark Confidant trigger? Start asking them some questions like that. Because that is very possibly a situation where someone is cheating by, quote-unquote, forgetting their trigger. Uh, other other things uh, to look at when you're taking in the context of all cards across all magic history. Um, you might be able to play a deck that turns a detrimental trigger into a positive, like self-mill. Uh, okay. the, the, the poster child of this at the time was Roaring Primadox in, in Limited, uh, which is at the beginning of your upkeep, return a creature to its owner's hand. Which, in a vacuum, is clearly a detrimental trigger. But you could build a deck around it in draft that was full of acidic slimes and, and whatever that beetle was, bond beetle, that gives guys plus one plus one counters, and it would be amazing. Um, that doesn't mean it's not a detrimental trigger at a sealed GP. Yeah, but, you know, on turn four, if you play it with no other creatures, that's pretty bad. You have an illusionary, yep. illusionary pet. Yes, the opposite of the dash mechanic. So again, you can you can start with this. You can start looking at into very very specific corner cases and trying to find you know weird weird things where they overlap. But again, common sense. Look at look at the trigger. Uh, uh, if it's on the card to make it, uh, if the trigger on the card makes it better, then it's not detrimental. And if the ability in the context of the of the entire Magic universe is normally a bad thing. Like uh, uh, some of the uh, the triggers where it's like shuffle shuffle the creature that happened with uh, like the Eldrazi's, where it's like if they hit the graveyard, you got to shuffle it back in. Okay, that's there to prevent reanimation or like Sarah Sarah Avatar. Okay, that's a detrimental trigger. That trigger is there to prevent you from being able to do reanimation effects early in the game. Right. Okay, that's that's a trigger on there to make that card more balanced. Now you can build a deck that takes advantage of that trigger. And that might be the only ones that you see, you know, in in standard, but in the context of just the card itself, it's detrimental. Yeah, I think the the hardest one currently in standard formats is Sidisi, uh the original uh, three-color Sidisi. It has two triggers. One of them is a self-mill and then the other one uh, makes zombie tokens off of 
milling. So Sidisi Brew Tyrant says, whenever Sidisi enters the battlefield or attacks, put the top three cards of your library into your graveyard. And then a second trigger that says, whenever one or more creature cards are put into your graveyard from your library, put a 2-2 black creature token out of the battlefield. Those two triggers clearly are designed to interact with each other and offer a pretty positive effect, which is to get 2-2 zombie creature tokens. However, in the context of all magic, milling your library is considered generally detrimental, regardless of the fact that on this specific card, it, it has a very positive effect. Um, this is, and this is something that R&D has, has decided and has asked us to enforce in this fashion, that any self-mill be considered generally detrimental and, and come with a warning. Now, you might, you might be thinking along the lines of, it's like, oh, well, a warning? That's, that's not fair. It's, it's clearly something that's, that's, that's awesome. That's, you know, a warning. Those are horrible, bad things. And in reality, with this change to the to the mistrigger policy, the number of warnings that you give out for mistrigger have gone down to almost zero. Okay, you might give out one per event. However, I I, I want to piggyback on that real quick. Um, okay. The fact that warnings are are a rarer occurrence now for mistriggers has led to an unfortunate thing I've observed at competitive REL events where judges forget to give it out when they should. Mm. So you should always be asking yourself, is this a detrimental trigger? Now, that won't change how you fix it. The fix for, for triggers never changes based on whether or not it's it's detrimental. But it will affect whether or not you're going to give a warning, and you shouldn't forget to give a warning when it comes up. Yeah. Well, I guess I think where, where I was... Once once per tournament is, is generous. It, it is. Um, just, just, as, just as absolutely right, uh, I, you still need to give the warning. Do you mean um, once, like once for, per tournament for everyone or once per tournament per judge? Uh, definitely not once per tournament per judge, right? I, I usually see it come up around once a tournament, I, I would say, whether I'm a judge or a player. I, I'd, I'd make the unfortunate joke that I see it about as often as I see slow play warnings. Hey, now, I gave, th- hey. I gave three at the Pro Tour. Awesome. Upholding the Steven Zwanger standard. Yes. <laughs> I, I also, in fact, gave a missed trigger at the Pro Tour for uh, Dash, failing to return a dashed card. Oh. Yeah. Maybe, the, right, maybe that so was the only one. Hey, that, that sounds like that's a delayed zone change trigger. It is indeed. Uh, I don't think we have gotten there yet. Oh. <laughs> well, I was trying to move things along. Yeah, that's know. fair enough. Um, so... Um, yeah, so as, as Brian already mentioned, if you're standing there watching a game, or Ricky said this too about the Thrag Test situation, if you're standing there watching a game, somebody misses a trigger, if it's not a detrimental trigger, if you, if you aren't going to issue somebody a warning for that trigger, you don't need to step in. In fact, you shouldn't step in. Or investigate for cheating. Um, yep. Or if you're going to investigate for cheating, you should definitely step in. But um, And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add in, because there, there have been some questions where judges, they don't know, they panic. Is that a detrimental trigger? Should I step in? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Um, I don't think that stepping, like, if you're on the fence, like, you really don't know whether it's detrimental or not, and you and you step in, that's not the worst thing in the world. Well, 
I don't know. I I would probably err on the side of not stepping in. Well, if I'm, I'm not saying, sure. I'm saying, I'm saying if you do. So, so you're saying you, you should give wrong. them a warning if you're not sure? No, no, no. I'm saying, I'm saying if you step in, if you see a missed trigger and you don't know whether it's detrimental or not and you step in, okay, now you've just, you've just reminded the players of the trigger, well, that kind of I mean, thing. That, you may that, or shouldn't, may not... that shouldn't matter because, like, that shouldn't matter because the trigger's already missed at the point where you could step in. Yeah, but it impacts their possibly ability to remember the trigger in the future. Right. Like if yeah, someone like, reminds them of it. So that's why I, that's why I would say I would tend not to step in. Like I think you should go find out if you're going to issue a warning and then come back and give it if you are and otherwise not. I would I'm just my 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 stance on it is if you're wrong, if you give a warning for a trigger that should not have been given a warning for, okay? You're you're the only judge and it's a GPT. Um because you feel that that trigger is detrimental, that's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, the warning itself is not the worst thing in the world. I think right. the impact it could have on the game um, should give you a little more pause. I, you know, my my take on it is the worst thing that happened is a trigger that was supposed to happen is more likely to happen. Blech. Yeah, but it's it's a situation where we we as judges don't want to be seen as kind of assisting players and offering. Yeah strategic no. help and and part of magic strategy now is to remember your triggers yeah i i completely well, agree with ricky here as, as as a player i find it very frustrating when judges step in on triggers that that they shouldn't um i'm just gonna say i, I just my, my 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 feelings is if a judge does that don't beat yourself up about it learn from it and move on but it, but you know again the worst thing that happened was the game is played more correctly yeah, I think the judge maybe should not beat themselves up. The the player may do some of that for you. Right. Yeah, that's that would be my concern. You shouldn't beat yourself up if you step in when you shouldn't. But if you're not sure whether or not you should step in, uh, you should go find out. Uh, it is better to come back and issue a warning a little bit later than yeah, it yeah. is to give one of the players uh, a little bit of assistance in reminding them that a trigger exists when it's not something you should be issuing a warning for. Now, if you yeah, do it and thing. you give a warning, it's not the end of the world. But if you're not sure, eh, finding out isn't the end of the world either. The the other key thing as to whether or not a trigger is detrimental is if the opponent calls you because he wants the trigger to go on the stack. <laughs> as we'll talk about in just a moment. Or right now. Or right now. All right. <laughs> so, so, so you get so... Players call you over and they say, we believe this trigger was missed. And you determine, yes, it was missed. And if it's generally detrimental, you give a warning. And then what is the remedy? So there's actually, I think, four. The remedies are broke down into into uh, non-expiring fixes and then uh, expiring fixes. Okay? So the non-expiring fixes are... And by non-expiring, I mean, so you missed it. You might have missed it a minute ago, a turn ago, four turns ago. These, the fact that you missed it, there is no, oh, it's been a turn, so it just goes poof. Um, if the trigger has a default action, okay, and the default action might be uh, something like the packs are probably a very famous example, like Pact of Negation, which is... Um, at the beginning of your upkeep, pay three blue blue, uh, or at the beginning of the next turn, your next turn's upkeep, pay three blue blue, or you lose the game. Okay, that's a default action. Losing the game is the default action. Uh, 
uh, echo cards from a, a while back, which require a, 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 you to pay a cost during the upkeep or you have to sacrifice it. That's an example of a trigger with a default action. So if you miss those triggers, whenever it's caught, okay, you have to take the default action right then and there. Uh, uh, or the, uh, yeah, you have to take the option or you have to you have to resolve it. The opponent does not get a choice as to whether or not it does or does not occur like we're going to talk about uh, a little bit later. Yeah, and this uh, is really... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Th this is really to drive home the point that, you know, these triggers are your responsibility to to do, you know, to not lose the game or to not lose your creature to echo. So we don't want to give a player the the option or the ability to forget about it and then pay for it at a later time. Right, right. And, but the other thing we want to do is you got to make sure that you give the uh, the opponent the option to resolve the ability now or uh, yeah. when the player would get priority at the start of the next phase. Right. Okay, so yes, uh, that, that was a misspeaking on my part. So the choice is not whether or not it occurs. It was whether it occurs now or just slightly later. Right. Uh, this is this is more more important, I think, in what the delayed zone change trigger uh, uh, fix, which is also handled the the same way. So if you have a the let's say Geist of Saint Traft, okay, uh, at the end of turn you're supposed to sacrifice that token. Well, that's a zone change uh, trigger or Kiki Jiki, the token from Kiki Jiki or something like that, and you don't do that. Uh, you, when it is detected, you need to do it. Uh, and the reason why it's in there for the opponent gets to decide whether or not it happens now or at the beginning of the next, uh, when a player would get the priority uh, at the start of the next phase, is so that the opponent has a little bit of more control over, because it's kind of awkward to have creatures appearing and disappearing in the middle of combat. Right, it's very it's, awkward. Yeah, yeah. the, the Ob so, Obzidat surprise blocker. Was the was right. the big one? Yes, and so so the the delayed zone change trigger can be either a creature leaving the battlefield or a creature coming in. That's why uh, Aetherling sets up a delayed zone change trigger. Obzidas got a delayed zone change trigger. Uh, Geist of Saint Traft has a Kiki Jiki. They just go in different directions. Um, so we made one policy that just basically says the opponent gets to decide now or at the beginning of the next phase, so that surprise blockers uh, uh, don't necessarily show up in the middle of combat. Right. Uh, so that's so that's the second non-expiring fix, uh, uh, is the delayed zone change. So, you know, you exile Obzidat, he's supposed to come back into, into play at the beginning of your upkeep, you forget he sits out there for three turns, he's going to be coming back. Uh, your Geist of St. Traft attacks, you forget to, to, to get rid of the Angel token, um, when it's remembered, that angel token's going away. It's not going to be like, oh, well, I'm getting ready to attack with him again, and oh, I have two angels now. No. It's not going to happen. It would be sweet, but no. <laughs> okay, and then there are uh, two uh, expiring, we'll call them expiring uh, uh, triggers. Um, they are, if, if the triggered ability would create an effect uh, whose duration has already expired, um, 
then that's not going to happen. That trigger just doesn't happen. So if you have a, a trigger that says like, get plus one, plus one until end of turn, and then the turn ends, uh, it's gone. It's, you know, on, on your opponent's turn, it doesn't, it doesn't just happen again. Okay, because that trigger had a, uh, a duration, and that duration was until the end of turn, and that turn is over. So that trigger is gone. It's expired. Right. Uh, the next one is if it's uh, the next uh, uh, trigger that can expire is really everything else. Okay, expires after a turn, not a turn cycle, but a turn. So if we have a trigger that's missed during the upkeep, during your upkeep, we have until it, it essentially expires during the next upkeep of your opponent. So it's a turn, not a turn cycle. Uh, after that point, uh, it's poof gone. Okay, you can still get a warning if it was a detrimental trigger, but there's there's no. Uh, uh, so what we're going to talk about is um, you can for those expiring triggers. So so the things that aren't the uh, the non-expiring triggers that happen regardless, the opponent has the option of whether or not he wishes to put them on the stack or not. Um, and so again, uh, uh, if it's been more than a turn, the opponent no longer has that option. So he, if he wishes to chime in and say, hey, I want that trigger on the stack, he has a turn to do so. Right? Yeah, and the, the most important thing here is the opponent gets to choose. So as a judge, when you are called into a situation like this, you should, you know, as part of the spiel, ask the opponent, hey, would you like this trigger to, to happen or not? And I don't know, 90 Five, 99% of the time, the answer is going to be no. Sometimes they say yes. And, and, you know, Dark Confidant is, again, another one of the examples where, based on the game situation, maybe you're trying to close this game out and you want to take a shot that he'll lose a little bit more life off of Dark Confidant and you can, you could beat him. I, I have had a player say, yes, I want my opponent to put that Dark Confidant trigger on the stack. And actually, the, the, the confidant player was at a fairly high life total. I was surprised that he made that choice, but he did, and that's the you player's know, option. Some, sometimes the opponent is just like he doesn't want to lose. He doesn't want to win that way, too. I mean, I've I've, I've encountered I've encountered especially. I mean, I'll, I'll say it tends to be more at the lower tables, but you know, when you get a call over because there's a missed trigger, and you just ask, it's like, do you want the trigger? And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, sure, why not? Okay. Cool. Yeah, and, and I think it's an easy thing to forget as judges. And please just go ahead and ask the opponent, even if you think it's completely obvious. I might say, like, well, it seems obvious based on the way you're interacting with me that you don't want this to happen, but I just want to make sure. You know, just confirm it with the the opponent. Yeah. Now, one one thing to be careful of this this can be contentious in the sense of the uh, the player who controlled the trigger might get angry that the other that the other player is not letting him have the trigger. So if you get a vibe that that kind of thing is, is going to happen, stick around. Don't you know? Try and diffuse it as much as you can before it becomes an issue. Stick around in case it does start to escalate. Uh, but but pay attention to the to the reaction of the player with the trigger because some people do get angry. Yeah, they you know they will kind of do the whole well why are you why are you being that way type attitude and it's important to deflect that away from the players arguing with with each other to you as the judge saying 
you know, these are our policies based on what's happened. You know, this is this is how I'm ruling, and really try to try to get them away from you know finger pointing and blaming each other for being rules lawyers, because that can escalate. They can both start to you know try to get rules lawyery. The the language may escalate, etc. So yeah, try to try to diffuse that early on. So uh, to to come back to we said putting the trigger on the stack. So there's there's some additional rules as to when you put when where you put the trigger on the stack and uh, choices that you can make. Like for example, if the trigger is sacrifice a creature and that triggered during your upkeep and it's being uh, uh, it's being reminded at the end of your turn after the creatures that you have have changed. Um, you can't sacrifice a creature that has come onto the battlefield since that trigger would have triggered, if that makes sense. So during your upkeep, you've got, you know, a dragon. And then at the towards the end of your turn, you have a dragon and a bunch of tokens. Okay. And then the trigger gets remembered and the opponent's like, hey, I want that trigger to fire. You don't get to sacrifice the tokens because they weren't on the battlefield at the time the trigger should have fired. You're going to have to sacrifice the dragon. This is a, the, the, the excellent example of these is obviously exploit and bolster. Yeah, because those creatures can... Exploit, though, is optional, is that right? Yeah, the sacrifice is optional. Oh, yeah, never mind. You're right. Herp derp. I was going to say, because so, otherwise it would be a generally detrimental. Yeah. Oh, that's we never talked about maze. Maze triggers just didn't happen. Or no, 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 no. Oh, wow. Uh, May triggers actually fall into the same into the same category as everything else. So if the opponent wants to give you the May trigger, okay, he can, and then you can decide whether or not. Then once that triggers on the stack, well, you may do X. So if it's is if that, the ability is, yeah, are you sure? So if the, is that yeah. really where we're at now? Yeah, because it it cause if you read it, it doesn't talk about May triggers at all. So so for for example, if you miss your uh, uh, your exploit trigger, and your opponent says, I really want that exploit trigger on the stack, you go, okay, it's on the stack. Control of the trigger, you may sacrifice a creature. And he goes, okay, I don't want to. Okay. <laughs> move, and move along. I'm actually stunned that that's the case. <laughs> yeah. It was. It was. Um, if if you look in the in the additional remedy, we don't cover may triggers anymore because it folds so nice and neatly. Um, what it what it does is it handled the um, illusion cases where uh, uh, we always had those problems where it's like, oh well, it says I may target a creature or I may pay one to bounce target creature. I still have to target the creature. Oh. What if there's illusionary creatures? The Har- yeah, Harobi okay. clause, sure. Yeah. So this right here, while it seems a little bit weird, it totally now there is a definitive answer to all those. Uh, uh, whenever X becomes the target of a spell or ability, sacrifice it type triggers. That's very good to know, and it, and it's such a subtle change. I, again, like I had not noticed that that had been removed, but it's it's a it's a good one. Yeah, I, yeah. I hadn't noticed either. That's Excellent. So um, the the other thing is uh, where it gets put on the stack. So we talked about like what creatures you can and can't sacrifice. So so it gets put on the stack. Sometimes triggers are realized that they're missed 
and I'm going to say in the middle of a stack of spells, like you've got a stack of objects on the stack. <laughs> um, and when that happens, you're going to try and put the trigger in the most appropriate place on the stack. And if you can't, uh, and if that's not possible, then you just put it on the bottom of the stack. Right. You really got to make a decision as to whether or not it goes on the, you know, if you can't put it in the right place, you got to put it on the top or the bottom, make a call, bottom seems to cause the least consternation that, and problems. That, that is, to be clear, the writers of the policy made a call, not you make a call as the floor judge. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, you put it on the bottom. Yes, you always put it on the bottom. So that's uh, that's Miss Triggers. Is there is there any other specific points that people want to? I want to I want to kind of bring up something. You know, we were talking about changes, and there has been a, a recent change in kind of card templating that I really enjoyed um, because so Toby Elliott, level five in charge of um, infraction procedure guide and policy wrote a blog post a few years ago now, surprisingly, called The Five Worst Triggered Abilities of All Time <laughs> So Far. Uh, and you can read this at blogs.magicjudges.org uh, slash Telliot, T-E-L-L-I-O-T-T, and uh, just probably search for triggered abilities on that blog. And they go, number five, Braids, Caval, Minion, number four, Horizon Spellbomb, three, Frost Titan, two, Demigod of Revenge, and one, of course, Desecration Demon was the worst. <laughs> and, and it's the number three. Frost Titan has this trigger that says whenever Frost Titan becomes a target of a spell or ability an opponent controls, counter that spell or ability unless its controller pays two. And that, that would lead to a lot of feel-bad moments for players when they would cast a spell targeting it, you know, tap out, cast this removal spell, and then the Frost Titan player would be like, all right, uh, the trigger happens, it's countered, and it's like, Oh, and you can't, you know, you can't take that back. You cast the spell legally and you just forgot about this trigger. Well, the newest templating of this type of ability uh, from Dragons of Tarkir on Icefall Regent is spells your opponents cast that target Icefall Regent cost two more to cast. So that happens in the, the casting portion when you're determining the cost. So if you don't pay the two, if you forget about this and don't pay the two, you you get a judge involved and you know we would issue a game rule violation but we would back up the spell because it was illegally cast so that it's a little bit of a feel bad but it's not a feel bad that costs you a card and you just completely screwed up yeah. and you're going to lose the game you know right uh yeah definitely oh uh, so one one other thing in the in the mist trigger policy uh is it made it it makes it very very clear as to who's responsible for the trigger, okay. So in the in the Frost Titan example, okay, it's your trigger. You have to say something. You basically have to tell your opponent. You know, are you going to pay two? Yeah. In the in the in the in the current policy. So that was that was technology we did not have at the time. Uh, we've got that. We've got that now, though. But it's still it is it is still something that 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 people tr would try and would be like, oh well, I don't. You know, he gets to decide. I don't have to say nothing to him. Yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, I think that came up a lot with um, Ristic Study was the card. That's, yeah, that's that's everyone's favorite example. They play EDH and they 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 hate friends. <laughs> well, I, isn't that why you, why you play EDH, Brian? To hate your friends? Oh, no, no. 
I play fun decks. Everybody says that. Everybody says, I play fun decks. And then you play EDH, and it's the most abysmal experience. No, 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 no. I've, I've, I do, I do suboptimal things just for, for funsies. Uh, one, one, one guy had a, uh, so I was playing a Thada Adele EDH deck that's just really all it does is just copy stuff and just whatever, whatever you've got, I copy it. And, uh, so guys playing, I think it's, uh, Mar- is it Marchesa the Black Rose, that conspiracy, uh, woman that gives everything dethrone? Yeah. And then brings them back if they've got counters on them. Or, oh, goodness, yes. uh, yeah. Uh, so, um, so when I think Dethrone is whenever it attacks, if it's attacking the, uh, the player with the lowest life total, it gets a plus one, plus one counter. And so with the Thada, I attacked somebody, and while I was looking through their deck, I found that artifact that lets you pay like six mana, tap it, and you get to exchange life totals with people. You get to swap life totals around. So even though getting like the soul ring was the much better option, I ended up getting that and just messing with that guy the whole game. And I ended up saving the whole table just because he was like, well, I can't attack anybody because as soon as I do, he's just going to make my life total the lowest. Yep. That's fun. You don't care. Nope. Dot, dot, (laughs) dot. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah, it's like this is the... With a, this like, is the wrong crowd for yeah, that like, kind the, of discussion. Bat beat stories, when they're like you're in the middle of judging an event, and they kind of you're like, "Oh man, I almost had my opponent beat," but uh, it's like I'm about to hear a story I've heard fifty times. Oh, yeah, I've heard that one fifty times. So that so we're done with Miss Trigger, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. we're we're done with Miss Triggers. Um, I don't think there's anything else. Do you have anything else you wanted to, to discuss about Miss Triggers? Who Ricky? are you talking to? Me? Yeah. No, I think we covered we covered it fairly well. Um, again, I just want to remind people: don't be a jerk when it comes to triggers. Assume that they happened, and then if there is any kind of evidence that the trigger did not happen, then that's when you can point it out. But but don't try to play these word games or say like, oh, well, he didn't say he was doing it in response, so he missed the trigger. You know, with stuff like uh, counterbalance and such. We I never think. talked about out of order sequencing. Oh yeah, that's an important thing. Let's mm-hmm. talk <laughs> it about is. it now at this point right. of the podcast. Yes, the very which end, is, which is out of order. Um, <laughs> well done. So uh, we do have an episode about out of order sequencing, and if I remember correctly, uh, it's pretty much applicable today. Uh, and yes, that was episode number. Insert edited number here. <laughs> We'll just have to send notes to CJ for the editing. Insert Ricky's voice with this number. Um, 57. Oh, Ricky, you mentioned some links, too, which CJ's going to have to listen to this whole podcast just to find. I spelled it out, though. Yeah. The the Toby Elliott blog. And if you're a judge, you should be following that blog, especially around the time of uh, set release for any updates to policy. So... um, out-of-order sequencing is a thing where players sometimes do stuff out of order. And as long as they're not getting new information from this and it's one chunk of actions, um, that's okay. Uh, if I, for example, um, if I... Uh, oh, I have, a, I have one. So, Rabble Master. Yeah, yeah. Rabble Master is a great one. So with Rabble Master, it's not uncommon for people to have uh, Goblin Rabble Master in play. Uh, they'll turn a bunch of dudes sideways, 
bunch of creatures sideways, and then they'll grab a goblin token and put it on the battlefield sideways. Uh, all as one chunk of actions. Now, technically, this is out of order because they're supposed to get the goblin first, and then they're supposed to attack with all of their creatures. Um, but if you do it out of order this way, it's fine. And if your opponent wanted to stop you and do something, uh, they can say, hey, wait, wait, hold on. I have actions before you attack when you have a goblin in play or yep. where, whenever it is they want to stop you. So it's a, so it's important that it's all a block of action. If you If you turn your dude sideways... And then a noticeable amount of time later, you know, like, oh, and the goblin. No. But if it's if it's dude, 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 goblin token, that's fine. Dude. Right. Dude. dude. Yeah, this is one of those situations, out of order sequencing, it happens. And again, if you understand what your opponent is, is trying to do, then there's no reason to get all technical about things. Um, so news. Yeah, so we do have a couple of items in news. Um, there, uh, there's a new RC for Spain and Portugal. Uh, Sergio Perez is the new RC, and um, he, he's uh, I, he's filling in for Alfonso Bueno, who got uh, promoted to L4 a few weeks back. Right. Yes, that's correct. Uh, I've never had the opportunity to work with Sergio, but hopefully, I will at some point in the future. Um, have either of you guys ever had that opportunity? I was I was just with him at the Pro Tour. I forgot to <laughs> forgot to congratulate him. In fact, because the news came I, out while I was traveling. Yeah, I worked with him once at GP Madrid like three years ago. He seemed he seemed cool. Awesome. Well, congratulations to Sergio. Uh, I look forward to what he'll be doing in that region. That guy's a jerk, man. I can't believe he's our no. <laughs> Sergio was a requirement. Someone. Like they were supposed to be. No, I'm just kidding. Sergio is someone who has been quite involved in the Spanish. So he's he's the new regional coordinator of Spain and Portugal. Those two countries are together because of their proximity. And, and there's enough overlap, I think, in language that it's fine. Uh, Sergio is the new regional coordinator there. He's already been a very integral part of that community. And at times in the past, he has filled in for Alfonso you know, kind of as a as a proxy regional coordinator. So I, I don't think this comes as very much of a surprise to anyone, except for you, you guys. Um, it, I mean, it comes as a surprise to me just because I had never met him. I wasn't. I, I don't really know a lot of people from that region. So I hopefully I'll well, have the opportunity to meet some in the future. Jess Dunks, you should get out more. And by out, uh, I mean Europe. Right. I've actually uh, I've never judged uh, any magic event that was in Europe. It's not a place I've been. Um, only judged events in the United States and Asia. So that's not even yeah. Canada, not even Canada, only the United States and Asia. Um, yeah. I don't know, but anyway, so the other thing that we wanted to talk about, and we only wanted to bring this up because we've gotten a lot of questions about it is uh, there was an incident in round six of the pro tour. Uh, that involved a player making an appeal, and there was a lot of back and forth about whether or not uh, he should receive a game loss for not revealing um, a card that he had gotten with, uh, what was it, a Johnny? Yes. Right? Yeah, so he, he looked at the top... Mentor of, mentor of Johnny Mentor of Heroes. Yeah. He looked at the top four cards. He picked a Tassiger and, and then laid it down on top of his hand, uh, picked up his cards, and at that point they stopped and said, wait, wait, hold on, you have to reveal it. 
Um, and uh, there was a huge argument on the internet about whether or not they should be using the video replay to confirm what card it was to prevent a game loss. Um, so let's not mince any words here. Um, this was <laughs> this was Patrick Chapin, Pro Tour Hall of Famer, and I think that's part of why it was such a big story. It did happen on an on-camera feature match. You know, that's another reason reason it was a big story. And I think the best thing to do is to refer people to Cedric Phillips' article that came out today, um, April 14th. And now it's a, it's a long URL, so now we will make CJ go look it up and put it in yeah. the show notes. I'm but this is, this is absolutely um, an important article to read if you want to understand the situation. Cedric is someone who you know, is content manager and is a commentator for Star City Games, understands policies very well. He's not a judge, but he understands policy very well because he speaks to judges frequently to understand you know, how he should commentate on things. And really, he understands how important this, this incident and this topic is kind of for the future of magic and what it means for, for commentators, what it means for viewers, and what it means for the growth of our game. I think this was a fantastic article. You know, hats off to Cedric for writing this. Everyone should go read this if you want to know more about the incident and you know why it happened and maybe why it shouldn't have happened in the way that it did. So one of, one of the important things in the, in the MTR is it says that we can't use uh, video in, in rulings at the table. Now, we can use them for investigations after the fact, uh, but not at the, at the table itself. And there's, there's a few reasons uh, uh, for that, uh, why that policy was made, because that policy is about two and a half, three years old. Um, yeah, uh, so the re- since uh, shortly after Pro Tour Dark Ascension, it's Honolulu, right? Uh, I think it was somewhere in Europe, but maybe oh. it was Honolulu. But yeah, there was a very high-profile incident back then involving Brian Kibler and John Finkel, uh, where the judges on site used video evidence to make a ruling on a situation. And part of the reason the policy was written after that was because of how long the ruling took. You know, how long it took for the judges to consult the video and then make the ruling. It just made for a bad viewing experience. Yeah, so there were, there were uh, as, I, as I understand it, there were four or five, depending on how you look, uh, uh, reasons. One was the delay in, in how long it took to, to do that ruling. And it does, because you're going to go up there, you're going to talk to the players... You're going to figure out what's going on. And then if you had video, you'd make the determination as to whether or not you'd go use it. And then you'd have to go to where it is and pull it up and find the spot and stuff like that. And all that adds time uh, uh, to the event. The second thing is there is this question, and Cedric goes into a lot of detail about this in his article, about the, the, the fairness of, of, of whether or not, you know, you have and consistency in the fact that you can have two players uh, playing at a non-feature match table and have the exact same thing happen, and the result of the ruling would be different because of a camera being involved or not, and how that is. Um, we we want players to be treated. We want them to all be treated the same. We want them to be treated fairly, and that creates a a disparity between the players on on camera and the players that are, that are off. 
another aspect was at the time the policy was written, okay, and this is something that's changed, the technology just wasn't where it is now. It was harder to to recover video and stuff. Uh, so that would that lead that contributed to the policy of where it is. It's and, not even in a great place for that now, to be honest. It's better than it was. I mean, it, it's not it's not the best. It's not like instant. It's on my little iPad right in front of me. And then the 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 fourth thing is there was a tendency that players wanted to use it for everything. When they were on, when they were on the video camera, which it wasn't just for the game losses, but it was for, for you know, did I play a land? Life total disputes. It was like, can we go to video? Can we use the video? Can we use the video? And it started to become not just something to use in in special extreme cases, but it started to become commonplace. And the fifth thing that I remember that I started to see was players wanted to start videotaping their matches at GPTs and PTQs and FNMs so that if there was a call, they could prove that they weren't cheating or prove that their opponent was or prove that the story that they were telling was exactly the way it was. Um, so you kind of started to have uh, uh, a weird grassroots, say grassroots, but it was more like an extreme subset subset of, of a grassroots where people wanted to just start filming their own stuff with their shaky cams and their their uh, 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 monsters that are trying to destroy New York. Ros Roswell. I forget what the name of that movie was. Um, Cloverfield. Cloverfield, yes. So those, that movie those was things so weird. Those things all came together to form the the current policy as to what it is. And I don't think that with the exception of the technology issue slightly, I don't think any of those issues have really changed. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of research on this topic today. And I mean, one of the important things we talked, we talked about the time issue. And when people bring up other sports, you know, major sports like baseball, NFL football, the replay in those sports my understanding is that the footage comes from a home office. So there's an office somewhere where there are people with the feeds for all of the games. And when they get a call from a certain game saying, we need a replay, there's someone specifically sitting there who can cut the footage and splice it, you know, and edit it in a way that the official can look at it and, you know, rewind it back and forth just in that portion that they want to see. Um, that's That sounds complicated it sounds expensive um and unfortunately yeah like we are just not at a point uh with the growth of the game where it's feasible to have that kind of setup even if it's someone on site at the pro tour like you would have to dedicate a specific individual to do that and so i've heard people say that they don't really believe it's that hard and i promise you if it wasn't that hard you'd be seeing a lot more replays just in the coverage uh they would be replaying cool stuff that just happened uh, and that's not yeah. something we typically see because it's not something that's easy to do. Yeah, the, I mean, the television production for an uh, an average NFL game, you're talking about, you know, dozens of people involved in the, the editing and the production and the directing of this game. You know, cameramen, people editing the footage, putting it in, the graphics on the screen. Um, the, a Magic, even a Magic Pro Tour probably has like 10% of that in terms of manpower. 
if if I don't that even, I don't even might know even be lower. Yeah. yeah, I think it might be yeah, less. definitely lower. Um, the technology thing, yeah, I don't know very much about technology, so I will leave that to the experts. I think, um, yeah, the 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 interesting thing about this is, I I don't think. I mean, I think it was cor- the the ruling was absolutely correct as given. You know, there were two level five judges, Kevin Dupre and Ricardo Tessitore, involved in this. They did it by the book. One question I want to pose to you guys is 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 the book changeable? And I'm not talking about the the camera policy, but here was a situation where Patrick Chapin had two cards in his hand. He put them face down in front of him. He activated Tass- or a Johnny Mentor of Heroes, chose one of the cards, and then put it directly on top of his pile of cards in his hand. Now, what happens afterwards is he does pick up his hand, and his opponent's like, you didn't show me. Chapin picks up his hand, and I think at that point we are at an irreversible place. But my question is, if you have your hand face down and put a card directly on top of it, is that, and again, as policy is currently written, the game loss was correct. As soon as it touches other cards in his hand, that is considered part of his hand. He has failed to reveal the card to verify the information. But is this, is this a place that you would like to see policy change in the future? Is the, the face down hand and putting something on top of it? Both for this and for drawing extra cards, for example. Are you asking us so, or are you asking our yeah. listeners? Well, first I'm asking you and then I'm asking the listeners. That's the part I have not seen enough people discussing and possibly you know, proposing changes to the policy. Everyone's caught up in the camera stuff. But there is What's, a moment, like, again, Patrick Chapin does pick up his hand, his three and cards, and at that see, point, that's the, irreversible. The interesting thing about that is that even though he did pick it up, and if you go back and watch the footage, you'll see that he, he picked up his cards, um, he was insistent later that he didn't. And I don't think he was lying. I want to be very clear about that. But people remember things differently even moments after something happens. Yeah. And the w- so usually when somebody says, oh, it touched my hand, but I haven't picked it up or something like that, they, they, they may have gone several steps ahead. And, and another example of this, uh, uh, something similar occurred with, and even more extreme occurred with Louis Scott Vargas, some, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, uh, in a legacy yes. event where he drew an GP extra Denver. card. And he was saying, oh, I didn't shuffle it around. It's just we know what card it is. And even his opponent agreed with that. But if you look at the video, he actually shuffles the card into his hand. And he again, yeah, he wasn't times. he wasn't lying. He just remembered it differently. Once he made a mistake, he went back in his head and remembered it. And he didn't remember shuffling those cards around or picking them up because that was just a thing. He wasn't thinking about it. So, right. you know, you have to be really careful with that because frequently when when someone tells you these are the actions I took, they've actually gone one or two steps beyond that out of habit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I agree completely. I remember that incident quite well. Um, Toby even went back and pulled the video footage and and showed people, hey, like he actually mixed his cards up, talking about Luis. Um, and, and this is another situation where we have the video footage. Chapin remembers it differently. Again, not lying, but he remembers it differently because he saw the card. He knows what the card was. So he has a, a different kind of mental image of what, what his actions were. But what if we train play? What if we tell, you know, change the policy, the face down card thing? We tell players and we train them, you know, if you've done this, if you have your hand face down and you illegally put something on top of it, and we probably want it to be that if you catch yourself, 
right? I, not not the opponent catching you and saying, "Hey, like you're not that's not supposed to happen." But if you're the first one to say, "Oh shoot, I didn't reveal," and you leave your hand there and you don't touch it and you say, "Judge, like I have not touched it since then," is that something we want to change? Like, I, I'm I I don't know what my opinion is definitively, but I've been thinking about it a lot because there is, you know, there is always the danger of some kind of sleight of hand when you yeah, put so cars let me, together. Let me ask, let me ask this because, because right, right now the policy is card in hand because that's a very clear line. Okay. Um, but let's say I have the cards in hand. I have my hand in my hand and I, pick up those cards, and I get the Tassiger, and I put it on the leftmost side of my hand, the back card. Okay, now that is functionally, visibly the same as down on the table, card on top. You know, it is, it is right there, you can see it. But now I've got it in, in, my, in my hand, and yes, there's the, the opportunity for sleight of hand, stuff like that. You also have the opportunity where the opponent, you just saw it hit the hand, but you didn't see where exactly it was in the hand. Maybe it got put, you know, second from the left or something like that. And I think if you change the line and you say, like, oh, let's just educate players, I think, you know, well, you could just as easily educate them of don't put the card in your hand before it's supposed to go in the hand. You know, because if you if you start saying like, okay, well, it goes on top. It's like, okay, well, now how much overlap with it on the top? If it's sitting on the table, it's fine. But if it's in the hand and in the leftmost position, then it's not because it's just not on the table and people aren't touching it. I, th I think it opens up a little bit more area for arguing and debating as to where exactly the line is. It's it's a little fuzzier than when the card hits the hand. I think that's a lot easier and a lot cleaner to communicate to both judges and players. Yes, absolutely. And I think we run into difficulties of, of determining stuff like you said. You know, oh, you know, physically it was on the left side of my hand and then I immediately pulled it away, right? But the opportunity exists that yeah. they could have gotten mixed up very, very quickly that and the opponent might not have realized it, and and even again, as happened in the LSV case, the player himself, you know, misremembers it. I just, you know, I I have unfortunately given drawing extra cards game losses for I put a card from my library on top of my face down hand, and that's when it's caught, and it's correct. That's what the policy is right now. I've just often wondered if if this is somewhere that we can change the policy. Um, I can't think of a way we can do it right at this moment, but it's something I'm going to give some thought to, and I'll let you know. Yeah, and I yeah. will challenge the, the I was going to say readers, uh, the listeners, to, to also think about it. Um, because it, it, this is something that I think, as the three of us, as, as level three judges, have a little more control over, that we could make a... We could have a discussion and make a suggestion for policy change. We're much more likely to be able to change this than anything concerning video replay. That's just completely out of our, our pay grade. That's a Watsi decision. Um, we could make suggestions, uh, but I don't think that they would be, they would be listened to, but not really, you know, we, we don't have the ability to sway that. I, I, yeah. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah. 
no, it's yeah, it it is it is something that. So whenever whenever you as a as a judge you find a particular piece of policy that doesn't that doesn't sit well with you, examine it. You know, look at why it is what it is, and are those reasons? Can we satisfy those same reasons? Uh, going about it a slightly different way. Most of the changes, like just recently, we had a change to uh, uh, the partial fixes in GRV because somebody realized uh, that something could be done slightly better, made a suggestion, and it showed up in policy. You know, so definitely, as long as the discussions are uh, uh, respectful and not vitriolic, uh, uh, as can sometimes happen on the forums. Um, then, you know, propose changes, propose differences, just be, just be open to, uh, the discussion that it invites. Yeah, I, I would say discuss it with your peers and that could mean different things. That could mean judges in your local area. It could be judges at the same level, what, whatever, you know, is appropriate for, for your peer group. And, and then kind of as your discussion evolves, if you feel it's appropriate, you know, escalate it the chain and you give it a sanity check happen. sanity check that it's not just absolutely crazy before you, before yeah, yeah, you yeah. broadcast it to the world yeah don't don't just go on the judge forms and say i saw the chapin thing like this policy needs to change like that's not helpful not saying that that happened but i'm just saying that that those types of discussions are not helpful to cha actually changing policy try to come up with you know try to come up with your own policy before proposing a change I 100% agree. Um, and if you have changes, you feel, feel feel free to let us know or, or say, hey, what would you think about this change or, or whatever? And we'd be happy to discuss it with you. Yes, your peers uh, could in fact be judge cast. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, uh, we have some emails, but I don't think we're going to discuss them this show. I think our plan is next show is going to be dedicated to emails. Is that right, Brian? Yes, um, it was. It was. We were going to do emails this show after the Miss Trigger discussion, but those pesky pro tours uh, have a tendency to bring news. Womp womp. Right, and I'm excited that Control's doing well again. Just for the record, I'm very happy about that. Um, anyway, I'm excited that Adrian Sullivan is doing well with Control, but specifically Adrian. He's uh, he has always to me been a fantastic ambassador for the game if you've ever had the opportunity to watch him play at an event he, he's so friendly he's so respectful even even in losses you know he's he chats with his opponents it, it's he's just a fantastic ambassador and I, I I'm so happy to see him succeed at the highest level and hope to hope that we see more of him in the future I agree 100% I'm very happy to see him do well I want to help see him keep doing well all right i think it's that time um did uh, ricky do you have anything you want to plug before we sign off well let's see as i said last time um i am working on a podcast we we recorded we had a recording myself sarah ellis and jeffrey higgins uh three judges here in portland we don't have a name we don't have a website we kind of joked about calling it Morphcast because it's a it's a nameless podcast. And more and more I think about it, maybe that's what will stick. So look for that in the future. You can find me on Twitter at MTG Rickopedia. That's with an R. And 
if the podcast is published, that will be a good place for you to check out um, where it will be. I also have a blog, mtgrecopedia.blogspot.com. And I, one of the things I've been writing recently is good practices for judges, usually stuff at larger events. And then I also have a semi ongoing thing of, is it missed, you know, dealing with triggered abilities. And I, um, after the pro tour, I wrote about the whole whisper wood elemental thing. So if you want to do a little bit more in depth, uh, reading about whisper wood, wood elemental, you can check that out there. Awesome. Uh, well, Ricky, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, really glad you could come on and share insights and wisdoms, especially into things involving, you know, old, the, old stuff, old stuff. And I mean, you were, you back were in the, my day, you couldn't miss what? triggers. It's triggers. I remember what it was before lapsing triggers. <laughs> I remember when you could get a DQ for not having your deck list right. It's true. Rabble, rabble, yeah. rabble, 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 rabble. All right. So, so Jess, we don't we don't have CJ. Do you do you remember the the, the list of all the stuff that we got to say at the end of the show? <laughs> you have to um, plug the, the Twitter, the Facebook, and the, the email. Twitter, the Facebook. So you can the... find us on judge uh, on judgecast.com. You can find us at Facebook, Facebook facebook.com slash judgecast. You can find us on Twitter, twitter.com slash judgecast. You can find us on Tumblr, but we never actually use Tumblr, so don't worry about it. You can find us uh, a Tumblr. What's that? What the heck is a Where's Tumblr? It? Tumblr? It's um, it's a blog. Right? That's type. my point. We never use it. It's a bloggy website that all the kids are using these days. Um, it, wait, we, Tumblr or Tinder? Can we Tumblr. find JudgeCast on Tinder? No. <laughs> I'm gonna. I don't uh, think it works that way. I'll now be. I got this big old grin on my face. You just gave me an idea, Ricky. Okay. Then. <laughs> um, you could email us at judgecast at gmail.com um, and I think I hit everything. Email your questions because next week is the, the email yeah. answer yes. episode. Well, it's, been a, it's been a few weeks. We have a few but definitely email us your questions. Um, it, by the way, even when we don't get to them on the show we do answer them. So feel free to email us anytime if you have a question um, or we've even had occasionally people send us messages on Facebook uh, at the judgecast page uh, to ask us questions as well. So Absolutely. Um, I'd like to thank Ricky Hayashi for being on our show yet again. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, he's one of the hosts that started this show originally. So we really appreciate all of your hard work on it. For JudgeCast, my name is Jess Dunks. I keep it fair. I'm Brian Pruin. I keep it fun. I'm Ricky Hayashi, and I keep it missed. <laughs>